Informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Jesse Allen. And welcome into a new episode of AOA. Thank you so much for joining us here today and happy to be with you once again as we talk about issues impacting rural America and what is going on in agriculture. I'm your host, Jesse Allen, and we have a very busy, very exciting show lined up for you here today. Coming up in segment four, we're going to learn more about the upcoming Midwest Agricultural Export Summit happening in South Dakota. Luke Lindbergh with South Dakota Trade will be joining us later in the program to give us a rundown and an update on that upcoming summit. In segment three, we are going to recap the July Ag Economy Barometer. Dr. Jim Mintert with Purdue University will be joining us to give us a rundown of those July numbers. So we look forward to that conversation. Coming up in segment two, Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University will be with us as we look at the most recent meat demand monitor. It's a monthly meat demand monitor that is published by K-State along with the beef checkoff and pork checkoff. And we're going to get details on the latest numbers from him coming up in segment two here today. So a lot on tap here as we get going with another busy show on AOA. Kicking things off for us here today, we are joined now by George O'Connor. He is with the owner-operator Independent Drivers Association, OIDA, as they're called. And we are talking about uh, legislation announced that would prevent the USDOT from moving forward with a speed limiter rulemaking. And George, appreciate you being back on AOA with us. It's great to talk with you. How are you? What's going on, Jesse? How are you? Good to be here. So uh, yeah, so let's talk, let's talk speed limiters. And now, if if you don't own a commercial motor vehicle, you might be thinking, well, how the heck the why the heck would a speed limiter or DOT rule affect me? Um, well, DOT is considering um, this this rulemaking that would actually negatively affect the supply chain and, if you can believe it, make our roads less safe. Um, they're considering mm-hmm. a rule that would require large um, large semi trucks uh, to have a, a speed limiter um, that would limit the the highest speed uh, as low as 60 miles per hour so can you imagine you know you're on a you're on a road in Texas or something open road and you know the speed limit might be 70 75 80 miles an hour open road you're just trying to get from point A to point B deliver your goods and you can't go more than 60 miles an hour you know, that's, uh, that could put a crimp in the, in the supply chain. Um, doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to figure that out. But, you know, then we mm-hmm. get into, into road safety. So you're, let's say you're a passenger vehicle um, and, you know, you're abiding by the speed limit, let's say, you know, 65, 70 miles an hour. But you have, you know, two semis in front of you that one's trying to pass the other on uh, you know what we call these um these kind of turtle races uh if you will it's it's essentially a roll a, a rolling roadblock so you know you're kind of playing frogger almost to to get through traffic now that's incredibly dangerous because you got more interactions among among cars that leads to to more accidents so it's it's not safe for passenger vehicles to have these 
uh, essentially obstacles that are these semi-trucks um, in the road going lower uh, than the speed and flow of, of the rest of traffic. So that's, that's, that's the problem that we've, we've identified and we're working with legislators to address. Yeah, and George, great insight. And I, I couldn't agree more with you there. It feels like it would be a, a very dangerous situation. I, I know I've experienced it before on, on interstates where I've had been stuck behind that quote-unquote rolling roadblock that you mentioned and just feels like if we if we limit those speeds and run into issues like that, not only is it dangerous on the roads, but again, uh, could slow down supply chains as well and create longer wait times to get from point A to point B, right? Uh, you know, absolutely. And, you know, this is this is the entire supply chain uh, that it could um, affect. But uh, also, uh, in particular, agriculture. Um, so that's why the American Farm um, Bureau is, is supportive of legislation that um, was introduced in the House by uh, Representative Josh Brickeen, uh from Oklahoma and, uh, and uh, Senator Steve Daines from Montana in, mm -hmm. in the U.S. Senate. So there's uh, a House bill and a Senate bill that would prevent the DOT from implementing this rule. So there's big, big support from, you know, a lot of folks in the trucking industry who uh, don't see this as being good for safety and don't see this as being good for the supply chain. But there's also a, a lot of the support within uh, the agriculture community um, as well. So there, you know, we, we just we just need folks to <laughs> folks at DOT, at DOT to listen. And, and actually, the when this rule was announced initially there you know what they have is this open comment period where um you know in theory uh the regulated community can have a voice back to the regulators to, to provide feedback well mm -hmm. I, I think the small business truck drivers may have set the the record for comments put in over like nearly sixteen thousand comments um which is why this rule is taking a while to actually you know, come out in a final version because they got to read all these comments, and which has given us time to to you know work with our partners in the ag industry as well as in the trucking industry to work with our uh, our allies in Congress to kind of put a halt to this thing because you know from our our perspective and and perspective of of truck drivers uh, uh, pretty much across the board is that uh, these speed limiters are bad for supply chain and bad for road safety. We're talking with George O'Connor from OIDA right now. And George, I know another issue you guys are working on and looking at is truck parking. Can you get us up to speed on that real quick? Absolutely. We may have a uh, the, the political stars aligning to actually get this done. We've got an executive at our our uh, at OIDA, Louis Pugh, who he he always says when he comes to DC. You know, when I came uh, to DC for the first time about 20 years ago to talk about truck parking legislation. And he keeps coming back to talk about truck parking legislation. But we, we, we've, we've got some, we've got a real opportunity right now because um, we've got a, a bipartisan bill in the House and um, for the first time a bipartisan bill in the Senate that marry each other, ready to go. Um, and, you know, there's more and more attention being uh, brought to the whole uh, issue of truck parking and why it matters. There was a there was a tragic accident in Illinois just a couple weeks ago where a a Greyhound bus um, kind of came off the road 
and hit a, a couple of, of semi-trucks that were parked on um, a shoulder of, uh, of the road. Now, the, the trucks were parked there. They didn't want to be. Uh, the drivers didn't want to be, but the, the truck parking area was full. And you see this all over the country. Mm -hmm. Some areas are worse than others. But across the country, the number is there's um, one truck parking spot for every 11 trucks on the road. And that's absolutely inadequate. Um, and it's, it's, it's a safety issue because, you know, you got truckers don't want to park there. Uh, and passengers, obviously, passenger vehicles, obviously, don't want to have the risk of, of hitting these trucks. So uh, we're, yep. we're making progress there, and uh, we're excited to try to get this over the finish line. Fantastic. Well, with that, George O'Connor with OIDA. Thanks for joining us today. We'll get you back on AOA again soon. All right. Thanks, Jeffy. All right. Up next, Glenn Tonsor with Kansas State University here on AOA. On the latest episode of The Monthly Grind, we talked about the relationship between corn and poultry with Troy Schneider and Michael Granche from NCGA. Troy explains it a little bit more. Poultry is one of our biggest consumers, if not the biggest consumer in the livestock industry, mm -hmm. consuming 1.2 billion bushels of corn. When you take poultry exports and figure that in, the export of poultry brings 28 cents per bushel to the value of corn, and that's $4.1 billion in revenue to the corn industry. And Michael shares some of the continuing goals and outreach efforts that NCGA wants to do with its animal ag partners. Continuing all of the partnership and, and all of the conversations and discussions that we have with our animal ag partners is immediately where my mind goes to of, you know, what I'm thinking about for what continues to excite me and then and what's around the bend. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the latest episode of the Monthly Grind on AOA with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association. I've been farming my whole life. I don't need somebody to come out here and state the obvious. I don't need anybody to explain my farm to me. My local co-op works with CHS, and they know what I need when I need it. A global network of support. Local expertise. And valuable market options. We need a co-op that's here for us. So we can own every day. When you're an owner of a local cooperative connected to CHS, you get local expertise, a proven efficient supply chain, and global market access. Learn more at cooperativeownership.com. Informing America's Farmers and Ranchers, AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA here as we continue today and very excited now to catch up about the latest meat demand monitor that has been published from uh, our friends at Kansas State University and it's a partnership with folks like the beef checkoff, the pork checkoff, and I know we've uh, been catching up on the monthly meat demand monitor here on AOA, and I'm happy to have with us once again here for this month, Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University, and uh, Glenn, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, Jesse, thanks for having me on, and as you noted, I look forward to continuing our wonderful partnership here. Yeah, I look forward to continuing our partnership as well. I, I feel like th this work that you guys do with the monthly meat demand monitor is is very informative, and it's also cool to just see all of this data month in and month out. So let's just jump right in and start with uh, what was some of the biggest headline numbers you saw from this month's meat demand monitor? Yeah, so the summary for July, uh, our listeners probably know this is an ongoing national collection of information from U.S. residents. It's nationally representative of all the numbers I'm going to share here. Uh, in July of 23, 
we had retail demand, so think grocery store primarily for at-home consumption. Retail demand across the board, six of the eight products we evaluate, including all the beef, pork, and the chicken breast products, was up compared to June of 23. However, consistent with my theme last few months, it's still below the prior year. So a little improvement compared to the prior month, but in a year-over-year sense, we have a little bit of a pullback in demand. I still think that's a, um, you know, affordability kind of macroeconomic, you know, cost of living is outpacing wages kind of story. When you go to food service, uh, only three of the eight categories we look at were up in July versus June here of 23. Those three include ribeye steak, hamburger meals, and pork chop meals. So both pork, or sorry, excuse me, both beef and one of the two pork categories we look at. The other five were down versus the prior month. And again, they're all down from the prior year. So a little more strength month over month retail and less so when we look at food service away from home, uh, dinner meal specifically demand. Well, and I notice, you know, when you look at the report, you guys have that section there, willingness to pay. And to your point about some of those macroeconomic factors, you know, and seeing demand at the retail meat counter and food service, et cetera, you, you know, we continue to have these worries about inflation. And as you said, kind of the uh, pace of, you know, cost of living, you know, outpacing wages, et cetera. So, to me, it's interesting that folks are still out there and demand is still fairly robust at the meat counter. Yeah, and it's from a subset, I would argue. Uh, so the numbers I'm giving you are the national kind of, you know, aggregate. And mm. there is a little bit of a pullback. But when you dive deeper um, in two or three months ago, we did this deep dive. You can look at financial sentiment. So who says their household finances are better, or worse or the same than the year before? And that's a very you know basic indicator of how your household's doing financially. And you get very different meat demand patterns based upon that. And that's not surprising. So if your household is having to tighten their financial you know belt, then all things in your household budget are at risk to be tightened. And meat is not immune from that. Uh, this is a two-month-old statement, but at the time, only 20% of the U.S. public said their finances were better than the year before. The other 80% said they were the same or worse. So, you know, on balance, we have a pullback in buying power. That's where those comments are coming from. Uh, that's nothing that the beef or pork industries can influence. Those macroeconomic forces are well beyond the forces of any, you know, analysts like us or these industries, but you do need to understand it. So, um, if we had a product quality concern or safety concern or something like that, you know, my comments would be different because those are things the industry can directly influence. But when it's macroeconomic, you know, buying power kind of things, you sort of have to ride it out and keep putting a good product in front of folks, um, hoping it's okay when macroeconomic situation is challenging, as I would argue it is now, and you're positioned to benefit when things improve. Now, Dr. Tonsor, I know you guys with the meat demand monitor, you guys look at things on a, on a state level as well outside of the national numbers, don't you? Yeah. So we put out, uh, here's a shout out to a PhD student who works with me, Justin Bina. Uh, he puts out a, it's a dashboard. And if you go to our agmanager.info website, uh, everything you and I are talking about here, Jesse's there, including this dashboard where you can pull down data at the state level, as you're alluding to, uh, they are uh, color coded. Uh, purple colored, of course, because this is a basic case state, and so purple's good for everybody's soul, Jesse. Um, mm-hmm. But the darker purple are bigger numbers, so like higher values of you know prior day beef consumption would be a darker purple, all the way to a lighter, almost a white uh, shade when you pull up those maps. But any of the things we're talking about, you can pull up at the state level. With those state level numbers, was there anything this past month that really stood out to you one way or another, either positively or negatively, or was everything pretty much in line with previous months? 
Yeah. So we have this July report and literally three days before we put out a special, we being me and Justin here, a special report looking at the interplay between meeting your fitness goals. So weightlifting and exercising with mm-hmm. intentional protein consumption. Uh, we don't have time to break that full report down, but, <laughs> but, but I will do that shout out for it for those who are interested in it. But the punchline is a, those that intentionally eat protein to meet personal fitness goals consume beef, pork, and chicken at much higher rates the prior day. Uh, that's one of the take-homes from that summary report. But you're teeing up this state-level difference. One of the things Justin called out in that report is that pattern is stronger in the South and the West. So, you know, California, Georgia are two states where we have a higher, you know, differential. So if you tell me that you eat protein for exercise reasons, there's a bigger gap in your protein consumption because of that versus those that don't in California or Georgia. Conversely, that's less of a deal in Nebraska, Iowa, Minnesota. So there's a strong regional difference to that uh, that corresponds with exercise patterns and the like around the country. And we're talking with Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University going over the July meat demand monitor numbers. And uh, Dr. Tonsor, I saw as well when I was looking through the latest report in your ad hoc questioning, you guys look at a, a breakdown by generation. What yep. were some of the differences you saw there? Yeah, so specifically what we broke down was our protein values measure. So every month, each person answers a question. We give them 12 items and we ask, what are the four most important and what are the four least important in your protein purchasing decision? Uh, nationally, we put out a chart every month and we regularly find taste, freshness, safety, and price are the four most important uh, and what I call social issues. So environmental impact, uh, animal welfare, origin traceability rank much lower in that forced rank exercise. What you're calling out is in our July report, we did that same thing, but by generation. So, you know, I'll take the two extremes to make the point. The baby boomers generation, which is those born between 46 and 1964, uh, taste and freshness are ranking very high. I mean, they're the highest among the generation cohorts. And then nutrition actually comes in as third most important. And at the other extreme, the Gen Zs, which are those born in 1997 and on, you know, they're quite a bit younger than you and I, Jesse, uh, safety, taste, price, and freshness rank as the four highest. But regardless of which of the four major generational cohorts we look at, you have these four or five things ranking high, the, you know, the individual ranking varies, but those social issues I talked about earlier consistently rank lower. So they are not the top determinant in protein purchasing decisions. That's not to say they can be ignored, but we certainly can't lose sight of taste, freshness, safety, and price, because those are the core consumer purchasing decision drivers. Well, we got about uh, two minutes left here, Dr. Tan. So before we let you go and wrap things up, any other numbers that stood out to you, either from the national or state level in this month's meat demand monitor you want to share with us? Yeah, so the, there's a lot of chatter on the uh, diet, self-declared diet front, you know, how, how many vegans, vegetarians we have in our population. And we do have them. I'm not you know, dismissing that. One of the things we measure every month is exactly how would you declare your diet? And again, here in July, uh, it's kind of steady as she goes is the trend. So there is no trend is the really the punchline. But in July, 70% say they regularly consume meat you know, or you know, products from animals. And an additional 12% label themselves as flexitarians. So those are also meat consumers, but they just you know periodically have meals where they intentionally don't. So when you combine that up, it's regularly over 80%. In July, it was 82% are either you know heavy meat consumers or periodic in the form of flexitarians. that's not a new and it's not even a sexy finding, but I think it's important to note that it's a regular finding for well over three years in this effort. Uh, Well north of three-fourths of the public 
our regular meat consumers and flexitarians. And we need to keep that in mind in all these discussions. Well, and I know, folks, again, you uh, mentioned the website a couple of times. If they want to look through all the numbers from the latest meat demand monitor or look at past months as well, I know they could do all that online. Where can they go? So Ag Manager, just like it sounds, .info is the broader Kansas State University Department of Ag Econ website where this is based. There's a whole meat demand section that this is under. Uh, you can Google that. Google the meat demand monitor. It'll come up quickly. Uh, you're welcome to find me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Uh, I will cross post. and I know your team does as well, Jesse, uh, yeah. a link to this. And we'll link that to get folks to that as well. Fantastic. Well, and again, that website, agmanager.info. And again, we'll have stuff posted on our social media as well. And with that, Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University, thanks so much for joining us here for a recap of the latest meat demand monitored numbers. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, catching up with you again next month. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jesse. All right. Fantastic stuff there from Dr. Glenn Tonsor from Kansas State University. Coming up next, we are going to take a look at the July Ag Economy Barometer numbers that are put out from Purdue University and the CME Group. Dr. Jim Minter with Purdue University will join us next. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, where we take a close look at the benefits of cooperative ownership. Every week, we'll host a new guest and discuss how you can get the most from working with your local cooperative. And we'll learn why farmers and ranchers just like you choose cooperatives to help them persevere and prosper. Tune in each Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Jesse Allen. And welcome back to AOA. Time now to get an update on the latest ag economy barometer numbers from Purdue University and CME Group. Joining us now, Dr. Jim Mintert, Professor of Agricultural Economics and Director for the Center for Commercial Agriculture at Purdue University. And Dr. Mintert, Thanks so much for joining us here on AOA today. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Let's dive in and, and take a look at the latest numbers here. And, you know, cautious optimism seems to be back out there in farm country. Uh, overall, that uh, producer sentiment improving slightly in the month of July. Can you talk about that a little bit just to start? Yeah, so the overall measure of sentiment, the ag economy barometer rose a couple of points uh, to an index value of 123. That's a pretty small rise. But if you look under the hood a little bit, uh, the two sub-indices, the index of current conditions was what drove that small increase. It was up five points compared to the June reading. Um, the index of future expectations didn't really change much at all. I think it was up just one point. 
So people became a little more optimistic about their current situation. And um, that was kind of interesting when you think about what was going on with commodity prices, especially corn and soybean prices from the time we collected data in the middle of June to the time we collected data in the middle of July. I think maybe one inference is the fact that people felt better about crop conditions uh, back in June. Of course, people were extremely worried about what was taking place with drought conditions. Mm-hmm. And even though we were seeing some strength in prices, um, it's tough to get real optimistic when you look out the window and your crop doesn't look very good. But by the time July rolled around, um, many locations, not everywhere, uh, were looking better. And of course, we've seen some improvement in moisture conditions since then. So I think people are feeling better about yield prospects and and uh, that might have contributed to some of the improvement uh, that we saw in July relative to June. Yeah, and it, very interesting to see some of that there. And to your point, you know, looking at just how the summer growing season's gone and you know, with everything that we're experiencing throughout the not only the ag economy, but the broader economy, I, I found that as well to be a bit curious that uh, the overall you know, index of current conditions went up five points. It just it seems like and I'm hearing this just a little bit more optimism out there in, in farm country, Jim. Yeah, that's a good point. In fact, if you look at a chart of the ag economy barometer or uh, the one of the two, either of the two sub indices, it's kind of interesting to see, you know, we that bounces around a fair amount from one month to the next. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to last summer, there's an uptrend in uh, both the overall barometer and the sub indices as well. So just put it in perspective. A year ago at this time, the Ag Economy Barometer stood at an index level of 103. This month it was at 123. So we're up 20 points over that time frame. You go back two years, we are below that level. Back in 21, we were at 134. But it's interesting that we've kind of, with some bouncing around on a month-to-month basis, we've seen that roughly 20% improvement since last summer. And, And as you point out, Think about all the uncertainty we've had experienced uh, since that time, right, with respect mm-hmm. to what's going on with the war in Ukraine, uh, what's going on with crop conditions, what's going on with prices, what's going on with input prices, concerns about the banking sector in the U.S., just a lot of volatility out there. And yet we've seen an improvement in sentiment. So it's pretty clear there's something going on. People are just a little more confident um, and, and thinking that things are a little bit better than they were this time last year. Well, I'm glad you brought up that point as well about, you know, comparing to last year versus this year, too. I have to think there's maybe some changes as we look at the future as well. And what is farmers, you know, longer term perspective? I know we saw a little bit of an uptick uh, on that sub indice as well. But I I have to think compared to last year, that number uh, I would think is looking better as well, Dr. Minter. Yeah, so if you look at um, not so much the index itself, but um, the underlying questions that we pose to producers on our phone survey, one of the questions we ask every month is, do you think that a year from now, your farm operation will be better off financially, worse off, or about the same as now? And this month, 21% of the people in the survey said they thought they'd be better off a year from now. Uh, 31% said they thought they'd be worse off a year from now. But if you compare those responses to what we received this time last year, this time last year, a little over 50% said they thought their operation would be worse off in a year. Uh, And this month that was down to 31%. And again, if you look at the percentage saying they were better, expected to be better off last year at this time, 
Uh, that was down around 12 or 13%, and this month it was at 21%. So again, it just speaks to the idea that people are feeling a little bit better about things. Uh, the current condition was probably the biggest driver in July relative to June, but from a longer term perspective, people are feeling better about both the current situation and looking down the road. We're talking today with Dr. Jim Mintert from Purdue University, looking at the latest ag economy barometer numbers. And uh, I was looking through the numbers here before we uh, jumped on the air, and I noticed uh, looking at uh, farmland values. And I have to think, you know, with the current state of the economy as far as interest rates and the the cost of money, so to speak. I'd have to think that's something that's on farmers' minds as they as they look at farmland values and and more, you know, equipment purchases, things like that around the farm. But specifically, you know, farmland values. I think about some of the most recent sales in parts of the Midwest. I mean, those numbers still remaining pretty high there, Jim. Yeah, people have become a little more optimistic about farmland values, especially the last couple of months. So for a little background, we ask people about their opinions with respect to where farmland values are headed in two different ways. The first way was we ask them to look ahead 12 months and say, what do you think is gonna to happen to farmland values in the next 12 months? And then the longer term index is based on a question that asks people to look ahead five years. And we always get a more positive response to the five-year question with good reason, because you look at farmland values over longer periods of time. Historically, farmland has tended to go up over those longer time frames. But even uh, on, on the short-term index, people became more optimistic here these last two months. And again, if you look at a chart of that question and uh, those responses to that question, uh, going back to, I, we've got the data on this one, going back to the beginning of 2019, you can see that there was... Um, a little bit of a downtrend taking place with respect to optimism. And so for background, anytime the index is above 100, mm -hmm. that means more people say farmland values are going up or expect to see them go up than expect to see it go down. So we always get a, a somewhat positive response with more people saying that they expect farmland values to improve or increase. But if you go back uh, uh, roughly a, almost two years ago, two years ago, that index was at 142. Um, last year it was at 127, so still positive, but less optimistic. And just earlier this year, going back to the month of May, for example, that index was down to a value of 110. So it was kind of drifting lower uh, for an extended period of time there. These last two months, it's bounced back up to, um, in, in July it was at 125, in June it was 126. So people became more optimistic. And we saw something similar to that with the long-term index. The long-term index these last two months has been sitting at an index reading of 151. A year ago, it was at 150. Two years ago, it was at 151. The all-time high in that index is like 161. So people are relatively optimistic, despite the fact that they're also at the same time somewhat concerned about interest rates. We have picked that up in some of the other questions when we ask people about you know, looking ahead, what are some of the things you're worried about? Rising interest rates is one of the factors people are expressing some concern about. So the improvement in, in expectations for farmland values has taken place despite the fact people are a little bit concerned about interest rates. And I'm glad you, you brought up that point there at the end, uh, interest rates being a concern looking forward. I know that was not the top concern, though, for farmers in the survey here for the July numbers. What what was that top concern among the folks that you surveyed, Jim? Yeah, so the top concern continues to be uh, high cost of inputs. 
Um, that's and that's been the number one concern for quite a bit of time now. So that that's not a big surprise. People are still worried about a potential cost price squeeze. But then as you start looking at some of the other factors that are people are worried about, uh, it, one of the interesting questions we ask uh, is if people say it's a bad time to make large investments in their farming operation, we always come back with a question that says, well, why do you think it's a bad time? And one of the things that's shown up in that uh, question going back to last summer is a transition away from people being um, concerned about the high cost of, for example, farm machinery and, and new construction and more concerned about rising interest rates. And just to put that in context, last summer, um, I think between 44 and 49% of the people who thought it was a bad time to make a large investment said it was because of the rising cost of, of machinery and, and new construction. Mm -hmm. And only 14 to 18% said it was interest rates. In the most recent survey, 39% uh, said it was interest rates and only 29% said it was the rising cost of uh, farm machinery and new construction. So you can kind of see the, you know, if you look at that on a chart, you can see it just kind of gradually drifting up with respect to concern about interest rates. So interest rates are definitely on people's minds. They're definitely concerned about it. They're definitely thinking it's gonna have an impact on them going forward. But so far, not enough to have a negative impact, at least from their perspective on farmland values. Well, Jim, great thoughts. Before we let you go, we run out of time here today. Anything final you, you would share with us from this month's Ag Economy Barometer or anything you'd reiterate to folks as they're looking through the numbers? Well, one of the things that we ask people about this time of year is try to get a handle on what they think is going on with respect to cash rental rates. And so this month's survey and last month's as well have asked corn and soybean farmers what their expectations are for cash rental rates in 2024 compared to 2023. The results are very consistent across these two months. Roughly one out of four producers, one, one out of four corn and soybean producers are telling us they expect to see cash rental rates rise in 24 relative to 23. So it'll be interesting to see whether or not that uh, one out of four corn and soybean producers uh, is a large enough percentage to actually wind up pushing cash run rates up again in 24 compared to 23. Well, great stuff. We appreciate the time. Dr. Jim Minter, Professor of Agricultural Economics and Director for the Center for Commercial Agriculture. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch up with you next month for the August numbers. All right. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate it. All right. Up next, we'll talk about the upcoming Midwest Ag Export Summit with Luke Lindbergh from South Dakota Trade here on AOA. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Nick Corville, an animal nutrition consultant with CHS, about calf nutrition and weaning strategies. Now is an ideal time for cattle producers to consider adding calf creep to their management plans. Nick, if an operation is looking to add creep feeding, what benefits might they expect? The upfront one would be pasture savings, replacing dry matter from those calves that are now eating a pellet. It's going to save grass for the mama cow. Using calf creep, you're also going to see heavier weaning weights at the end of the season. Majority of the time, we can see healthier calves just because we're forcing a trace mineral vitamin package into them through that pellet that they're not normally getting from a fiber diet. What's the potential return on investment with creep feeding? Typically, depending on pasture conditions and the way the operation runs, you can see a 50 to 70 pound gain just with using calf creep alone. If pasture conditions are ideal, maybe sometimes even knock on the door 70 to 100 pounds additional gain from calf creep, $410 ton calf creep. Our feed to gain ratio, the calf's going to have to eat around five pounds to gain one pound of muscle. That equates to a cost of about $1 per pound of gain. And calves around it, where I'm at anywhere, anywhere from two to 
at 275. So it's going to cost you a dollar to feed them, but you're going to return a dollar to a dollar fifty back this year if it works for you and you can get a hold of some creep feeders. And what calf weaning strategies do you recommend for cattle producers this year? If a producer's already got the capital expense tied up in a creep feeder operation and has feeders rented, there's some self-fed products that we use Head Start specifically. You just roll from calf creep right into Head Start with the same feeder. That calf's already accustomed to eating out of that feeder, knows what it is. Um, the only difference is now mom's gone. So as much of that constant we can keep with that calf, he's going to go right to eating. The quicker we can get them on feed, usually the faster they're going to wean off and get the ball out of them. So mom doesn't have to be there. Well, thank you for joining us around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. Information America's farmers and ranchers need. AOA. Now, back to Jesse Allen. Well, coming up here in just a few weeks' time, it will be the Midwest Agricultural Export Summit happening in Sioux Falls, South Dakota on August 23rd. And this lineup of speakers and uh, events that are going to be going on during the summit really piqued my interest, and I wanted uh, wanted us to learn more about it. So joining us now here on AOA to discuss the upcoming summit He's the president and CEO of South Dakota Trade. Luke Lindbergh is with us. And Luke, appreciate you uh, making some time to join us here on AOA today. How are you? Jesse, thanks for having me on and for a chance to highlight what we're doing here in South Dakota. Well, let's dive in and talk about the Midwest Agricultural Export Summit. And as I mentioned, a, a pretty great lineup of speakers talking about Midwest trade and exports and more. Can you just uh, run through some of the highlights uh, of who is going to be at the summit and, and some of the things you guys have going on? Yeah, the purpose of the summit largely is to focus on ways we can collaborate as a region to promote our products all over the world. I always say that you know agriculture is really not as much a partisan issue as it is a regional issue. And so the more we can work together, the more we can be successful. Uh, so what we're doing is bringing together folks from seven states of the upper Midwest to talk about ways to collaborate, to uh, work together, to improve marketing, to uh, look at different export partners and talk about logistics and all, all of the above to make sure that we're positioning ourselves for success. So that's kind of the, the big, broad, overarching topic. And uh, this year's conference has a tagline of diversifying our export markets. So again, looking at ways that we can build resiliency and find new friends all over the world. Well, and looking at the lineup of speakers and bringing in some, some great folks as we think about you know, looking at that regional kind of the partnerships that you mentioned and um, just looking through this guest list here. I know Ted McKinney, the CEO of uh, NASDA, you guys are going to have him speaking and a lot of other great folks. Can you uh, talk about some of the folks that are going to be speaking during the summit? We are very fortunate this year to have a, a tremendous lineup of, of panelists and speakers. Ted McKinney is a great example Ted, uh, when he served as the Undersecretary for the Foreign Agriculture Service uh, uh, during the Trump administration, I worked closely with him. I, I was served at the Export-Import Bank at the time. He's got a great picture and understanding of the trade good flows for agriculture all around the world. He'll be moderating a discussion with four of our state agriculture leaders, um, Hunter Roberts from South Dakota, Sherry Vinton from Nebraska, Mike Nag from Iowa, and Tom Peterson from Minnesota. 
So that discussion will largely focus on ways, again, that what, what types of products are we looking as states to prioritize and what are some of our pain points? But then we also have some great discussions from uh, one of our sessions in the afternoon will focus on how we can build a secure and resilient food system. And um, we have Ambassador Kip Tom, who served to the, as the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. agencies in Rome. Those are all those ag agencies like the World Food Program and the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, as well as Greg Dowd, who was our chief ag negotiator um, under the previous administration as well, coming out, he's now uh, going to take a leadership role in the dairy world going forward. But we're fortunate to have him. He'll be here to talk a little bit about how he sees trade flows changing and where we can uh, strengthen our, our security and our food systems uh, right here mm -hmm. domestically as well. So should be a good roundup of folks. Yeah, good roundup of folks. I know uh, talk on the farm bill as well the afternoon with uh, Senator John Thune of South Dakota and uh, South Dakota Congressman Dusty Johnson. So I know that will be a, a hot topic as well. And I know over the uh, the lunch hour, a little bit of a, a business perspective, it looks like during the summit with uh, Linda McMahon, the chair of the board of uh, the America First Policy Institute. That sounds like that could be an interesting, uh, interesting discussion as well with her. She uh, founded the WWE wrestling empire that many of us are well aware of, served as uh, both CEO and president of that organization. But then most recently, um, prior to her role as the chair of the America First Policy Institute, she was the 25th administrator of the U.S. Small Business Administration. We're fortunate to have her coming out to speak as a former cabinet secretary talking about ways we can support workforce development in the region. I know mm -hmm. it's a hot button issue for many in the agriculture sector. Very true. Very true. I want to circle back to kind of the overarching theme that you mentioned as well, looking at diversifying and, and building that resiliency into our export markets in the upper Midwest. We just think about all the all the things that are going on right now surrounding trade. We know demand for U.S. commodities has been a little weaker here as of late with bigger supplies out of South America, et cetera. And you know, looking at the country here, the U.S. importing a lot of food. I, I mean, there's there's a lot going on kind of surrounding this discussion, isn't there, Luke? There's a lot going on. The, the whole system that we had prior to COVID, prior to Russia's war in Ukraine, prior to China getting African swine fever, there's just been a lot of black swan events in recent years. And, um, the, there's definitely challenges that come associated with that, Jesse, but there's also opportunities, right? I think we know that China is actively working with Brazil and Argentina to grow more soybeans that they can procure uh, away from our soybeans right here in the upper Midwest. And so our goal with South Dakota Trade and with this event is to make sure we have new partners around the world. We're not necessarily advocating for decoupling or de-risking, but we're looking to make sure that we do have other friends out there that we can tap into and supply products to and help grow those markets domestically for those countries so that uh, the demand increases there and we can be a, a supply provider for them. It's all about relationships, isn't it, Luke? It is indeed, yes. And so we're, we're fortunate uh, coming up here, I'll be leading a trade delegation with Secretary Roberts right here from South Dakota, as well as Lieutenant Governor Rodin to go down to Mexico City. Mexico is an important market for many of our agricultural product segments, uh, and we're doing that at the end of September to, again, build relationships, find new buyers, make sure that uh, South Dakota is listed as a, as a top supplier for that market down there. 
Well, Luke, before we run out of time real quick, where could folks uh, learn more, stay up to date with what's going on with the summit? I know space limited, but where could folks learn more about it? Sure. I'd encourage you to reach out uh, to one of uh, my colleagues, Edward Newburn, if you're interested in attending the summit. It is by invitation only, largely because space is a, is a limiting factor for us at our event venue. But uh, Edward can be reached at edward.newburn, N-E-W-B-U-R-N, at southdakotatrade.com. Fantastic. Luke. www.southdakotatrade.com. Fantastic. Luke, we're out of time. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Jesse. Appreciate having me on. And that's going to do it for AOA today. I'm Jesse Allen. Have a fantastic rest of your day. On the latest episode of The Monthly Grind, we talked about the relationship between corn and poultry with Troy Schneider and Michael Granche from NCGA. Troy explains it a little bit more. Poultry is one of our biggest consumers, if not the biggest consumer in the livestock industry, consuming mm-hmm. 1.2 billion bushels of corn. When you take poultry exports and figure that in, the export of poultry brings 28 cents per bushel to the value of corn, and that's $4.1 billion in revenue to the corn industry. And Michael shares some of the continuing goals and outreach efforts that NCGA wants to do with its animal ag partners. Continuing all of the partnership and, and all of the conversations and discussions that we have with our animal ag partners is immediately where my mind goes to of, you know, what I'm thinking about for what continues to excite me and then and what's around the bend. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month for the latest episode of the Monthly Grind on AOA with our friends at the National Corn Growers Association.